Grace on Fire, episode 71. Grace Nation, you've waited an entire week. Get ready for another power-packed episode of Grace on Fire in three, two, one. What's up, Grace Nation? It's a beautiful, beautiful Wednesday afternoon as I record this. I hope you're having a beautiful, beautiful day wherever you are. Walking the streets, it's time for a little Grace on Fire. And hello, Grace Nation, and welcome to the show. My name is the irreverend Dr. Jonathan G. Smith, a.k.a. Smitty, and I am your online pastor, and my goal is to help you craft a life for a higher purpose. And on today's show, we are talking about how to avoid the pitfall of basing your identity on a job. And I hope that you aren't not, I hope you're not making that mistake as I've made that mistake in the past. And I can tell you right now, it is a difficult one to do, especially if you're a man, especially if you're a bearded man. You know, this is my job, this is what I do. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you right now that if you fall into the trap of basing your life, your identity, and your purpose on a job that I'm going to tell you right now. You are setting yourself up for failure. And ladies and gentlemen, I've been there and done that, so I am speaking from the School of Hard Knocks, and thank you so much for listening to this show. Let me ask you a question today. If someone were to ask you, if someone were to ask you, to say, hey, you know, who are you? How would you respond? I guarantee that if you were asked, hey, who are you? you say, oh, well, uh, my name is Jonathan and uh, I'm a pastor. Immediately, our first reaction is to give a name and then tell our occupation. Is it not? I'll bet you nine times out of 10 that you use your job to describe your identity. And the problem is, well, what happens when you lose your vocation? What happens when you lose your job? Well, the answer is, is that, you know, you kind of lose your identity, don't you? Then you have to say, well, hi, my name's Jonathan, and I'm, I'm currently unemployed. Man, I have, oh, gosh, I've been there. It's painful. It's painful. So today we're going to be talking about, you know, avoiding that pitfall and moving our identities and moving our purposes and, and understanding why that's such a pitfall. We're not going to get so much into how to build an identity, but to understand why that's such a pitfall and to kind of get into the problems with doing that. All right. And also on the show today, we're going to be talking a little bit of street theology, and that is really related to this because if you ever found yourself looking for a job and you're out there praying uh, like I had, I'm not even sure if I prayed I've told you guys a story, so I'll tell you a story a little bit a little bit about that. But how do you pray when everything is on the line? And we are really looking for an answer. Also on the show, I'm going to talk to you about a tip of the week, uh, a new book that I'm uh, listening to on my Audible uh, app on my phone while I'm out jogging. And, uh, and by the way, uh, good news on the jogging front. Over the last, I would say probably over the last uh, two months, I have been struggling to keep up my running program. And principally, the reason for that, this is not an excuse. This is just fact, all right? This is what's been going on. That is, is that I have been suffering from severe, severe back pain. And so it's been very, very difficult for me uh, to kind of process through uh, all of the back pain. So, you know, the question uh, is, you know, how does that impact on your ba- on your running? Well, the answer is, I mean, it hurts. 
And so I've actually lost a lot of sleep over it and uh, been going through some therapy three times a week. And uh, over the last two uh, days, not two days, probably the last three days, but I've been able to get in some running this week, which I'm super, super stoked about that. And so anyhow, just wanted you to know, because some of you follow me on Facebook and you're like, hey man, how are you still jogging? And the answer is yes, I still am. But I'm going to tell you a little bit about that story in a little while and why that's related to identity. And, and as you know, here on the show, that we try to follow a fluid and flexible and yet interconnected sort of, you know, esoteric format on Grace on Fire. As we are all embarked on this journey called life, and we're trying to understand where we're going. And by the way, if, if, if that is a question for you, and you're saying to yourself, hey, um, I don't really know where I'm going, and uh, I am tuning in your show because I want to know how to do this thing, I have got a proposal for you, and here's my proposal. I am in the process of developing my own coaching uh, practice, and that is, I mean, you know, fee-based coaching where I sit down and we can work out your plan, your struggles. And what I have found is a lot of people get stuck in life. And we're going to talk about this uh, analogy of being stuck a little bit later. But a lot of us get stuck in life. And, you know, over this process of being a pastor for a couple of years, I have seen this over and over and over again. And it's been incredibly frustrating for me. And it's, you know, how do you take people stuck in a hole, and how do you get them out of there? Well, the answer I have discovered just through my own personal development, uh, working on myself, uh, engaged with other coaching, and then ministering to people, I've realized, you know, hey, man, I really like this coaching stuff. And so I'm in the process of developing a practice um, and a professional practice as a life coach, and I am looking for some victims, I mean volunteers, who would be willing to work with me on developing the process a bit because I am the, I'm just starting out and um, it would be completely free of charge. The only thing that you would have to give me is your time. And then what I'm asking from you is afterwards, if you could give me a referral and um, give me a little uh, nice thing to say to put on my website, I would greatly appreciate that. So let me know. Um, I'm looking for four volunteers. I already have two, so I only have two spots left. So do uh, reach out to me. It's simple to do that. You can go to Jonathan at MyGraceNation.com. Again, that's Jonathan at MyGraceNation.com. Would love to hear from you. And now let's get into some street theology today and ask the question, well, how do you pray when everything is on the line? Connecting deep truth for everyday life. This is Theology on the Street. You know, so many times we face problems, overwhelming overwhelming circumstances. You know, sometimes it just feels like impending doom where we feel like everything is on the line. And if something doesn't change, if something doesn't happen, then catastrophe is imminent. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. I have felt that way at many times in my life where I've, you know, I've asked myself, I mean, like, gosh, you know, if something doesn't happen, if something doesn't give, I mean, this is going to be the end of whatever it is. And, and the truth of the matter is, is that one of the things I'm beginning to accept in life is that there are seasons in life where things come and where things go, where, um, you know, nothing ever really remains static. In fact, the only thing that's, that remains the same is change itself is what they say. And I, and I think that's really true. But there are times in our lives where if we can get into situations 
where it's, you know, catastrophe is going to happen, whether it's in a, it's a marriage ending a divorce, whether it's, you know, giant storm that's approaching. We sort of witnessed that here in Florida with the hurricanes, uh, with this massive hurricane, Category 5 hurricane. And the truth to be told is that it displaced a lot of people, particularly down in the Caribbean islands, Puerto Rico, et cetera. And, you know, when you stop and think about that for just a moment, you realize that when you get to this impossible place in life, what becomes your only hope? And second of all, how do you pray? And there's been several times in my life, several points in my life, as it particularly relates to job transitions, where everything was on the line for me. And I was just asking myself, I said, you know, God, you know, what, what are you going to do? And truth be told, had I not gone through those moments in my life, I wouldn't be here behind this microphone talking with you. So I want you to understand I have been right there. And, you know, what I'm going to tell you sounds like, well, that's a typical pastor thing to say. Well, that's true. I'm going to tell you to pray, but I'm going to tell you and show you a prayer that's in Scripture that I think is remarkable. And I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. I think that you should go do it. But what I want to do is just to give you enough background about this prayer, because I think it's so remarkable to see what God can do in people's lives and in the life of of people in the Bible, especially. So, well, let me just set this up. This is uh, a story uh, that comes out again of Second Chronicles, uh, where remember there's all the douchebag kings um, there, and um, yes, they were. And we're going to be talking about a guy who was both good and bad. And we're getting to a point here, or at least I'm getting to this point in my reading, where I'm like, okay, is there going to be a good king or not? And <laughs> it's hard to find these good kings uh, in the in the nation of Israel and then Judah because you know they they keep saying that. You know, they kept following their ways and not trusting the Lord, following the ways of Jeroboam, etc. And so, you know, you're looking for that bright light in the midst of all of this darkness. And so you come across Jehoshaphat, who in the end still screwed up, but Jehoshaphat was still a good king. And so in Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 through 25, is this remarkable story that takes place. And, and so let me just give you the gist of the story so that you understand what happened. Um, so Jeroboam, he's the king, he's in Judah now, and a great, great army, actually the ESV calls it a horde of people. So you just get the idea here that it's this massive group of humanity. And it's an army that's made up of three different tribes, essentially. And, um, you know, for, you know, clarification purposes, you can actually go read up the the read the biblical names. I'm going to give you some biblical names that are easy to remember: the termites, the parasites, and the mount seers. Okay, and you'll realize that those are a an English alliteration of the original Hebrew. So you can go look up the original Hebrew. But anyway, so the termites and the parasites and the mount seers get together, and they are going to invade Jerusalem. And Jehoshaphat seizes. He's the king, and he's clearly outnumbered. That there is no way, numerically speaking, that the armies of Judah can march out against this and this uh, horde and win. And so, in verse three, it's remarkable about what happens because uh, what takes place is you you get this refreshing honesty from a leader. And, you know, honesty with leaders sometimes is really difficult, but uh, I'm turning to my Bible here because I'm going to read it right out. And I love this because 
In verse three, it's or actually starting with verse two, it says this, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom beyond the sea. All right. And then it says in verse three, then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord. Now, what I love about this verse, first of all, is it's brutal honesty. You have this king, the mighty king Jehoshaphat, who's an absolute ruler over Judah, and he is afraid. And so what does he do? He goes and he prays. And actually it says, seek the Lord three times uh, in the text. And so it's giving you this emphasis that of, of repetition of where they're really seeking after God. I remember years ago, and it's been four years now, but I remember it so well, so burned in my mind. I remember being fired from uh, my old job, and I remember about this time uh, sitting in my backyard and just weeping and asking God, God, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I have these two beautiful kids. My wife was pregnant with our third. She had a job, but she didn't really make that much money. We lived in Fort Lauderdale. And I remember just sitting in the backyard. And the reason why I sat in the backyard, because there was a chair in the backyard, and there was this big oak tree. It's not there anymore. The the new owners took it out. But this um, big oak tree and these squirrels would just all, they were always all over the place. And so I remember praying and just crying out to God. And there was a little squirrel that was just staring at me eating. And, you know, I was just like, like me and the squirrel. That's it. That's all that's left, me and the squirrel. And it was a low point. It was such a low point in my life, I got to tell you. And I was, and the truth is, is that I was afraid. I had fear inside me. I was afraid that I wasn't going to be able to find a job that I liked. I was afraid that I wasn't going to be able to take care of my family in the way that I expected. I had no idea how to start the job transition or the job hunt process, which I hate. And I just felt completely overwhelmed, completely overwhelmed. And I was afraid. Fear is a terrible thing. Anxiety and fear are terrible things. And so I can immediately relate with Jehoshaphat here for just a moment because when it says he was afraid and he sought the Lord, he was seeking the Lord, I was like, gosh, do I remember that feeling of being terribly afraid. So Jehoshaphat goes on and begins to pray. And, and so it goes through this mighty prayer that ends in verse 12b. All right. So take verse 12 and split it up into A and B. And the first part is the request. And then the second part is the confession. And this is why this is so this is why it's so cool because essentially he appeals to God. He appeals to God in the very beginning of verse six of his prayer. He calls God, you know, the ruler of the kings of nations, that all power and might are in his hands. He says, none can stand withstand you. It's just this, it's this idea of just praying doctrine. It's, it's praying belief. God, you're a sovereign. And then he appeals to the promises of Abraham. And he goes on to say, Hey, you promised us this land, Jerusalem and Judah. And then he goes on and uh, and says, uh, verse 7, 
he talks about how, verse seven and eight, how uh, he is going to renew his part or Judah's part, really. But he's, he's talking on behalf of Judah, but he, he's really talking about himself. He says, we will stand, even if everything falls, we will stand in front of your sanctuary. And so he is committing himself to the Lord. And then he gets to verse, or excuse me, finally gets to verse 10 and 11. So after all of this praying that he does of just calling upon God's character, calling about God's promises, renewing his part in the relationship, then he states the problem. He's saying, you know, there's a horde of people that are coming to destroy us. And then he finally gets to the request, and the request isn't, Lord, make my problems go away. But instead, what it says Will you execute judgment on them? In other words, are you a just God? And then it gets into verse 12b. And I love this because this is the this is the ultimate confession. We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us, and we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I mean, that's a powerful verse. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. If there's a verse that you should memorize, verse 12b, 2 Chronicles 20, verses 12b. I mean, you can add 12a in there, but I'm telling you, for we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us, and we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Well, as the story goes, God sends a prophet in and and and, and says, trust the Lord, you know, do not be afraid. He says that, and then God wipes out this massive horde. It's this mighty story of deliverance. But the, the point that I want to drive home for us today is this, <clears throat> excuse me, is, you know, understand the power of prayer in these desperate circumstances, all right? I mean, there is an, there is an absolute freedom and a liberation when you move past the point of fear and just simply release yourself to the sovereignty of God and just say, whatever happens, I will trust you. Our eyes are on you. I mean, that is, that's an incredible, incredible statement. And so I think that the takeaway here today is to understand prayer as one of the ways of yielding to God's control. And that can only happen when you say those words, we do not know what to do. Because ultimately what this drives us down to is the issue of trust. Do you trust God? If you do, then you do have you have no reason to fear. And now for Smitty's Life Hack Tip of the Week. And that brings us to my tip of the week. And I'm super stoked about this tip of the week. And that is, um, I am reading a book called uh, Mind Gym by Gary Mack. Now, this shout out to Blake Lavender, who is my uh, body coach 
I know that I have a personal trainer. The reason why I have a personal trainer is not to have the body of my dreams, but so that I can have somebody that says, get your butt to the gym, which I absolutely need. And so anyway, so, uh, but I was talking to Blake, I was talking about to Blake about my interest in coaching. And I asked him, I said, you know, do you have, is this something that you do? Do you have any resources? He said, yeah, you know, Smitty, you got to check out this book. It's called Mind Gym. And so the gist of the book is it's the, it's, it's, it's written by a sports psychologist, which um, I used to have no appreciation for. I have massive appreciation for sports psychologists now, particularly in their um, pursuit and quest to understand why some people choke while others win <coughs> Astros versus Dodgers in uh, the World Series. Anyways, but, you know, why do people some choke? Why do, why do people, uh, incredible athletes, not seem to do as well as they possibly could, or at least their physical potential? And um, Gary has this quote that you can find it online. You don't even have to, re- to buy the book, but um, it, you you can find this. And I think it's so true. This is what he says. He says, your attitude determines your altitude. Whether you think you can or can't, you're probably right. The choice is yours. Now, <laughs> don't you hate that? I mean, that's terrible, right? Whether you think you can or you can't, you're probably right. I have witnessed this in my son who uh, struggles with, um, he really struggles with his self-concept right now because he's seven years old. And so he'll strike out and he says, I can't do it. I can't do it. And then he strikes out again. I can't do it. I can't do it. He strikes out again. I can't do it. I can't do it. So finally, I pulled my son aside. I said, son, when you're in the batting cage, you're electrifying. You can sail balls out. The issue is not whether or not is not whether or not you can hit the ball. I said the issue is what you say to yourself before you get into or before you get up into the batter's box. And so I had him do this exercise, not as a result of reading this book, but it's basically the same idea. And that is this. I said, I want you to say I can and I can't exactly at the same time. He goes, what? I said, again, try this. Say, I can and I can't exactly at the same time. And he goes, well, I can't. I said, you can't, can you? And I said, the mind works the same way, Sterling. I said, how would you feel if I said to you, Sterling, you can't hit the ball. Sterling, you can't hit the ball. Sterling, you can't hit the ball. And he said to me, well, I would hate you. I said, why? He said, because you're telling me I can't do it. I said, yes, exactly. So why are you telling yourself that? And he stopped. And it was like the light bulb clicked on. He said, oh, he's going up there and he's saying, I can't hit the ball. And guess what? It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. He can't hit the ball. I said to him, when you get up there, you say, I can hit the ball. But if you miss the ball, I want you to say this, I'll get the next one, I'll get the next one, I'll get the next one. And sure enough, I had him exercise that and his hitting, his batting average just soared and has gone way up. And I think that's just a a simple example of the principles that you can find in this book, Mind Gym. So check it out. It's Mind Gym by Gary Mack. It's available on Amazon everywhere. I'll have a link to it on my affiliate account uh, through Amazon. So if you buy it, you can, you know, I get a little small, little uh, piddly little commission from it. But um, check it out. Mind Gym by Gary Mack. And now it's time for our feature presentation. 
And that brings us to our feature presentation for the day, building your identity on the wrong thing. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, the worst mistake that you can ever make or the biggest mistake you can ever make is basing your identity on what you do versus who you are. In fact, I'm going to tell you a little story right now about what happened. I've been sort of talking about it today when I lost my dream job, but um, you know, the truth to be told is that when I lost that job, my whole world collapsed and I found myself stuck in a situation I didn't know how to get out of. And so what I want to do is I want to share with you a metaphor that can help you understand exactly what happens in life. Okay. So here's the story. There's a man, he's walking along one day, he's, you know, off, he's done with work, and um, all of a sudden, he falls into a hole. He's walking along, and there's, there's a hole, it just shows up, like, hey, we're stuck, stuck down in this hole, and he, he gets down, and he finally, he orients himself a little bit, and he says, oh, looks around, and says, wow, I'm stuck in a hole. So, he works hard to get out of the hole. He's trying to get out of the hole, get it dry, he looks around, and there's no way that he can get out of this hole. And so now he's stuck in the hole. He says, well, what am I going to do? I'm stuck in this hole. And I really want to get out, but I don't know how. And all of a sudden, it starts to rain. And so rain starts, and and he starts noticing that, you know, that down at the bottom, the, the hole starts to fill with water. And so now he's starting to panic a little bit. He's like, oh, I really need to get out of this hole. And um, so he's in this hole, and he starts hearing somebody come, you know, walking by. So somebody's walking by, and he says, hey, hey, help, help. Well, lo and behold, it's a counselor, mental health counselor. The mental health counselor looks down and says, you know, because a strange man stuck in a hole. I mean, you know, counselor's going to be like, you know, what's this? And so he looks at the guy and he says, hey, you're stuck in a hole. And the guy says, yeah, can you help me get out? And he says, counselor says, well, sure, sure. I'd be happy to, to help you. I've got a little bit of time left. I've done with my day. And why don't I just sit down here? Why don't you tell me, how do you feel being stuck in a hole. The guy listens and thinks about the question. He says, wow, you know, I'm really feeling kind of low, stuck in this hole, and I don't really know what to do because I'm stuck. And, um, you know, I'm really, I'm just, I'm feeling terrible about myself and, and I can't even believe I got into this hole and so on and on and on. He keeps describing how he feels being stuck in the hole. And the counselor keeps, you know, going deep, deep down and says, you know, starts talking about the past and, you know, did you have a dad that got stuck in a holes in the past and what was it like, etc. And he's going on and talking. And then all of a sudden the counselor says, well, that's all the time I have for the day. And if you're still stuck in this hole, maybe next week I'll swing by and you can we can talk a little bit more. And so he goes off, the counselor's off, and the guy in the hole's like, well, that, that, that's that's great. You know, I talk about my feelings being stuck in this hole, but I'm still stuck in this hole and I really want to get out. So then another guy comes by and he walks and he goes, hey, hey, can you help me? And the medical doctor, this time it's a medical doctor. And the medical doctor looks down at him and says, hey, I see you're stuck in a hole. And uh, he goes, yeah, do you think you can help me? And the medical doctor looks at him and says, well, yeah, I, I, you know, I've got a few moments here. Why don't you tell me, first of all, tell me about the events that, that led up to you falling into the hole. And um, did you see it? Did, you know, were you, were you paying attention to something? How did you, you know, how did you feel? Are you feeling disoriented? Um, you know, are you feeling any body aches or anything like that? And, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the guy says, well, you know, I don't know. And starts talking about him. And so the doctor pulls out his notepad or his prescription pad. He writes him a prescription. He says, well, here, you know, take this prescription 
And um, I'll come back next week to check to see how you're feeling. And, you know, hopefully you'll be better. So down comes the script, down into the hole. So now the guy's like, great, you know, I've talked about my feelings and now I've got a prescription and, you know, at least I'll feel better if I can get this thing filled. But that doesn't solve his problem, does he? He's stuck in a hole. And then a stranger walks by. And here's the stranger. And the stranger walks by and says, hey, man, you're stuck in a hole. And the guy responds, yeah, and I can't get out. And then the guy does something that he least expects. All right? The guy jumps down into the hole with the guy stuck in the hole. And the guy stuck in the hole looks at the guy now. He says, the other guy says, why did you do that? Now we're both stuck in the hole. And the guy says, yeah, but I fell in this hole last week and I know how to get out. Now, I bring you into this because this is the analogy that I wanted to set up for you or the metaphor I wanted to set up for you today, this metaphor of the whole, because it's very important to understand that sometimes in our lives, we get stuck in holes because life is full of holes. Life is full of ruts. We, we get to places in our lives where no matter what we do, we can't seem to break out of the patterns and the problems that we face. And the part of that problem is, is that we don't understand who we are. And so we end up identifying ourselves around our vocation. I am a salesman, or I am a financial planner, or I am a pastor. And when something comes in that takes that away, suddenly we go through an identity crisis. And it could be a number of things, by the way. It could be soldiers who uh, are no longer in the military, and they're now they're in civilian life, and they're having great difficulties adjusting to civilian life. How many people have you seen that are on the side of the road And they are uh, panhandling and they'll say, homeless, you know, veteran, uh, please help. What, What causes that, right? And the problem is, is they get stuck because they're in one situation in the military and then they get into civilian life, their circumstances change, and now they don't know how to get out. And then what very often happens when people get stuck in homes, or excuse me, homes, they get stuck in holes, um... As they begin to cope with the whole, either by going through relationship problems, substance abuse, and what they do is they just end up digging themselves deeper and deeper into a hole. And that is part of the big problem when you get stuck in life and you can't get out. Now, no matter what happens when you get stuck in a hole, you need someone to help you get out. Because just like the man that was stuck, you can't do it on your own. The reason is, is because a lot of times our identity are, are becomes completely surrounded in a hole. So now, how do you get out of this hole? How do you do this? And I think that that's one of the most important things, because I think that what happens is this, is that when you're basing your identity, uh, vocation, whatever it is, when you're basing your identity on something other than who you fundamentally are, and you mistakenly do it based upon what you do, okay, you may not even get paid for what you're doing. For example, um, I've seen this with uh, pastors' wives. Um, I've seen it with stay-at-home moms, um, women particularly, who get themselves or find themselves in a role, and all of a the sudden, they're, they're just going through life, 
and suddenly they some their circumstances change and then they don't know what to do they they're they're they're, they're like oh my gosh my children are gone uh, my husband is the pastor and i'm stuck in this uh, identity situation and people are expecting me to act a certain way and, and then they wig out and they freak out um, or pastors, they get stuck in holes. Uh, for example, they get into a situation in church where they're under tons of pressure, all the pressure that's associated with performance and, and, and financials and staff and all the things that kind of go along with it, meeting people's needs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as a result, they are stuck and they don't know what to do because they don't even know what the problem is. They don't even realize they're stuck. And then something happens that that completely rattles them. Oh, I'm telling you, I've been there. I have been there. And I think that the reason why all of this happens is because we're building our identities on something other than our vocations, on what we do. Here's the problem that I see with building your identities on what you do. First of all, think about your job itself. Any job in the world is the the most fundamental reality, again, is change. And the problem with jobs, particularly business models, and and I wish that people understood this, right? Business models change. New technology comes along. Skills that were once in demand become uh, become so uh, they, they either become so common. For example, um, I'm just thinking about you know WordPress. I mean, yeah, there's lots of people that still get paid to build WordPress sites, but there's a lot of people now who know how to do a WordPress site, and uh, you don't even have to pay them. There's companies to do that. And so the guy who used to make, you know, hundreds of dollars an hour putting together a basic WordPress site, he's competing with somebody, you know, in the Philippines who charges, you know, one fiftieth of his price and he's doing the exact same job. Um, You know, I've seen this particularly with men who in their middle ages who don't know how to work a basic computer. And so they have a hard time finding a job because their skills are outdated. Think about that issue alone. Um, Customers change. Relationships change. Health changes. And so what happens is, is that our skills grow obsolete And because our skills grow obsolete, even if we desperately try to keep up with all of the changes in the marketplace, you know, as generations changes, all of these things result in to our abilities to be effective in the marketplace may suddenly decrease. And so then you have to begin to pivot and find ways of doing something else. And so many people have difficulty doing just that. And so then they hang it up and they retire or they do something else. And, um, and then they wonder, you know, well, what do I do? That's the problem when you define yourself by a job, all right? Because you fundamentally must recognize the reality of changing. And if you're not prepared to change, and if you're not prepared to do something else or find something else, the result's going to be, hey, buddy, you're out of luck. And unfortunately, we don't have any place for you. I was talking with my old boss uh, of a job that I left um, 10 years ago. It'll be 10 years ago in June of next year, which will be a fun podcast episode to do. A whole decade of my life. But I remember talking with him. And he, he I, funny thing is, he called me the other day. 
And um, just, you know, it, out of the blue was my birthday and on LinkedIn. He's like, hey, happy birthday. I hope you're doing well. And I, you know, I sent him a message saying how I was doing. He said, well, hey, let's, you know, get together and talk. It was cool. You know, I hadn't talked to this guy in 10 years. So we started talking and he was telling me about how a decade ago he was so angry about the decision that I made. And he was, you know, mad that I would go off and leave my career to do this thing. And, and I remember feeling like, I remember feeling a lot of tension from him at the time. I could never figure out why. Um, I guess because he cared. Um, he didn't care enough to follow up, but, you know, 10 years later. But what's so interesting to me about that was he was telling me how uh, he'd become envious of what I had done because I was able to break free from the quote-unquote chains that he was feeling. Well, he's talking about the corporate chains of this, of his life. And how, how interesting it was to hear him describe how much the job had changed over that time. And he said, you know, it's just not like it used to be. Well, the funny thing is, is that I used to hear old reps back when I was working as a young rep say the exact same thing. It's just not like it used to be. And the truth is, is because the job had changed. Regulation comes in, um, you know, company uh, dynamics change, new leadership emerges, uh, new models emerge, new technology emerges. And what you find is, is that uh, people, if they're not willing to change, they get stuck. And so now he's in midlife and, um, you know, he's trying to get out of a situation and he's got some money. He's done well for himself, but now he's in his midlife and he's like, now what do I do? What am I going to do? And, you know, I listen to that question and I think to myself, the problem isn't about what you're going to do. The problem is you haven't wrestled with who you are. And it's until you get to the point in your life where you're crystal clear on who you are, you will never be able to craft a life of higher purpose, of a purpose uh, uh, that's going to drive your life, you know, forever, you know, at least for the rest of your life. And that's why I think identity and vocation are a deadly combination. So let me just encourage you today to think about that, to think about who you are. Let me ask you that question. Who are you? Who are you really? Strip away all of the stuff that you define yourself with. Your relationships, your, your family, your job, your, your home, everything. Who are you? How are you going to get to the bottom of that answer? Let me just give you the bottom line is that Ultimately, I believe that the answer to that question can only be found in relationship to God. But once you begin to discover that answer and begin to work through that, it's amazing to see what can happen in your life. And that brings us to the end of this show. Thank you so much for listening. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. May it continue to motivate you and guide you towards your purpose in Jesus Christ. to Grace on Fire, a verb creative production. For show notes, links, and more, please visit mygracenation.com.